And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with us. And you, we had a guest on Coast to Coast years ago who was just fantastic. His name was Neil Slade, and he talked about the brain, the power of the brain, the different things of the brain. And Tom tells me Neil has just called in from Santa Monica. He has been out for illness for some time now. Neil, how are you? Hello, this is uh, Neil Pine, George. This is author of The Conscious Planet, journalist, Jet Setting Magazine. How's it going, buddy? Doing fine. How you been? Oh, I've just been uh, working out. Yeah, Chris Milligan, you uh, just had a trying day author on your show the other night, remember? Yes. Yes, and, and uh, he'll be Chris Milligan, the, the publisher of Trying Day Press, will be calling you soon. So, Thanks. Uh, yeah, so uh, I remember one of your guests. Um, I was trying to explain that um, Christ was diametrically opposed to animal sacrifice. So I mentioned evidence from uh, two of the most credible historians, a first-century historian and a modern historian. Uh, that's Rin Berry, is a modern historian. Now, he's an ancient study scholar, Cornell graduate, one of the most credible historians, and it's a non-biased opinion. You know, I'm not saying I got this from a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or a, or a Buddhist. No, this is from a historian who's studying what's most credible. And according to Rin Berry, quote, unquote, uh, Christ was a vegan animal rights activist, unquote. Interesting. Uh, it, your, your guest acknowledged that Christ and the Israelites uh, he acknowledged their opposition to animal sacrifice, he, you know, because I read the quotes by Christ and the Israelites that that show that they're definitely opposed to animal sacrifice. But your guest said, oh, no, he, they, that doesn't mean they didn't eat meat. And I, oh, that's re- so I have three quotes, one of second century theologian, and I have uh, two more quotes. They're very short by um, saints that verify and confirm what I said, because there's so many people that are in denial about what the real truth about what the Bible is. In fact, when you talk about the Antichrist, animal agriculture is the Antichrist. And if you go to the slaughterhouses, the modern industrial slaughterhouses, you'll see what I mean. And even even Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy would agree that he wants to shut down factory farms. Well, that's an interesting take on that. But that's fascinating about uh, Jesus being uh, a vegan. I did not know that. Next up, let's go to Eric, truck driving in Indiana. Welcome to the program. Eric, go ahead. Welcome to the program. George! Hey, Eric, how are you? All right. This is Eric, the mind control guy. How's everybody doing tonight? Everything's great. Thanks. Awesome. I was uh, asking Tommy uh, when y'all was going to have David Weatherly back on again. And Tommy said he needs to call him because I'll tell you what, one thing about uh, a lot of different guests that have on, some folks don't know how to take them or not, and some got to put them to the test. Well, Mr. Weatherly, his work, he knows what he's talking about. And when uh, he wrote that book about the uh, BEKs, uh, Black Eyed Kids. Yes, I started to, uh, to read that book because. One thing about the uh, the paranormal, uh, you know, you may have never heard of one particular thing before, but in this world, one door leads to another door leads to another door. 
And when the lady was on earlier talking about the hat man, it made me think about an incident that happened with me a year and a half ago. What was that? I had just I had decided to take an interest in that, and I wanted to check it out. And I knew uh, David Weatherly uh, wrote a book about it, so I got his book. I had some books on audio, and one of the things that David said, which I can testify that it is true. And the people that don't have it happen to them, I want to tell them, be thankful that it didn't, because it'll make a believer out of you when it does. And one of the things that he said in his book that uh, even though you might not physically encounter them, one way you can tell that they have been around is stench. It could either smell like rotten eggs, rotten meat, or rotten garbage. And when this happened hmm. to me, it was back in January of 22, and I had just got back from a run. It was like 3 in the morning. It was in the 20s the, as far as the temperature goes, so yeah. it was pretty cold. There was nothing around, no factories, no restaurants that would have left any stench at all. I mean, right next to my shop where I work from, it's it's crops, you know. But Especially in the cold. Generally, yes, the exactly. stench happens in the summertime. Yes, exactly. And when I got back to my pickup truck, I walked over, and there was this godforsaken stench that smelled like rotten eggs. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And I thought it might have been some lingering diesel fuel. I wait a minute, that's not diesel fuel. That smells like rotten eggs. So I walked around to the other vehicles uh, in our yard, and it was nowhere else except right around my pickup truck. And then when I got home, uh, I picked up David Weatherly's book, and I was flipping through it. And there it was on page either six or seven where it described that. Two weeks later, I walked out on my uh, back porch in the morning. Boom, there was that stench again. So they had been around. And Jeez. after that happened, I closed the book. I put it away. I've never picked it up since because one of the things that Mr. Weatherly talks about is if you take an interest in them, it's just like radio frequency. You, 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 frequency. you like call them over. Exactly. It's just like uh, there's all kinds of stations out here, but unless I dial it in, I'm not going to hear it. So when you mentally decide to take an interest in those things, you are drawing them to you. And the one thing that is always said, they insist on wanting to enter into your house they or want, your car. They, they want to get in for some reason. And, they want in. And you never, never let them in because the big question is, who are they? Are they uh, demonic soul snatchers disguised as kids? Are they greys disguised as kids? I mean, nobody really knows what they are. But for the, the Doubting Thomases out there listening, I can testify uh, these things are real. And just because you didn't physically see them, be thankful, because they will leave their stench around to let you know that they are real. Interesting take, Eric. I, I think that they're demonic myself, you know, in the image of little kids, to let everybody take their guard down. What's our final text and tweet, Tom? What do we have? This is from Isabella in Cape Cod. Do you think it's possible that dreams can make you act irrational? 
Oh, absolutely. Especially nightmares and strange dreams. But dreams can also make you act very good and make things happen in a wonderful, wonderful way. I think they just make you think about things. I don't think they dictate your actions all the time. No, not a lot. You don't remember your dreams. I do sometimes, and there is one recurring one I do have. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I, I dream that in my house I discover this room that I've never seen. And I go back, and it's a tunnel, and it just goes farther and farther. And then I get to this bigger room where there's all these, like, eclectic old pieces of art and things. It's really weird. Is it your art? No, no, no. It's like ancient Greece, like out Library of Alexandria. Do you, have, do you have an addict in your house? Story about my attic. I do. I have never in 18 years been up there. What do you know? What what could be up there? Anything. I, I don't know. The inspection guy was up there. That's it. Are there boxes up there? I haven't been up there. Bodies? <laughs> there could be a crate of money for all I know. It could be comic books. Who knows? Yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks, Tom. Michael in Kansas. Take it away, Michael. Hi, George. Nice hey, to talk to you again. You too, Mike. What's new? Um. Well, I was kind of, I was wanting to see if I could get the, uh, great coast audience to uh, say some prayers for my friend Donald J. Trump. Uh, we should right be now, saying prayers for everybody. He's battling against some really evil forces out there, and I think he could use uh, some uh, encouragement. And He's got his back against the wall, doesn't he? Oh, he sure does. I'm not so sure about the document case. I mean, that's a strange one. There is this presidential law that allows a president to take some documents home and i just yeah it's a witch hunt as far as i'm concerned but and i mean it may it may have been be a great if you get him on the show yeah well we know some people who can do that that's for sure thanks george all right you got it next up let's go to sherry east of the rockies sherry take it away oh thank you george Listen, I had a thought about um, the the demons manifesting, too, and it's about why calling on God is so effective. Um, once I got psychokinesis, um, like I call it the carry effect, you know, when I was confronted by someone's evil act toward me and the garage door was going op- opening and closing and the TV on and off, um, it was just everything was electric was just going wild. And I called the electric department and I joked with them that maybe a UFO drove over or something, you know, but they, but I was sort of embarrassed about it and scared because this was, this was something that hadn't happened to me before. Did somebody, did somebody have it out for you? No, she tried to sue me, but she wasn't successful. She was doing some work on my property and she parked where she wasn't supposed to park. So when I came out of the garage, I hit her. But she was in the wrong. Police says you don't. There's no case, and and there wasn't a case, and she had to pay. For you mean it. you hit her in your car? You didn't punch her or anything? No, no. It was just she. She kept parking where she knew. I told her twice, "Do not park here. You have all this room over here because here's where I come out of the garage. I had a double garage, and I wanted her to know this is where. And I had noticed her peeking in my garage door. When she arrived, I thought, I hope she remembered what I told her, because I had to go to town later that day. But I said, you can keep on working if you want, and I'll pay you when you get back. Well, do you think think she cast a spell on you? No, she was cleaning out my—she had planned to do this, George, because she wouldn't have parked there. 
um, she wanted me to hit her car so she could sue me and get money from me. Oh, really? That was the whole routine, huh? It was a scam. Yeah, it was a scam, but she didn't succeed. And even my um, people that had my car insurance had to admit that, yes, she was in the wrong. There's no sense. What what created all these electrical mishaps? Well, it was it was psychokinesis. I didn't know I had that in me. You know, and Carrie, when she got angry, how everything went wild. I had that happen to me, George, and it's very frightening. But I was wondering, yeah, I'll, I'll elaborate on this, but I, I have to put this in here. If seeing these demons could also be a manifestation of a person's own fear. See, my son was going to be getting married in about a week or two. And here this woman was trying to sue me, and I didn't want to miss my son's wedding. Of course you know? not. So it was like I had all this, I had this real event happen that I was causing. And um, it's a scary thing. I hate to admit it. Well, how do you know it wasn't this lady doing it? Because I was feeling what I was feeling. So all all um, this, these energy bursts were coming from you. Yeah, because I had a, yeah. Yeah, well, this is sometimes, you know, I love your show, but if it's about something really scary, I just kind of have to cut well, it off. Oh, we do. We do have scary shows. So is this is this still happening shows. to you? No, no, no. I know, but see, all you have to do is call on God. See, that's why I have this prayer of protection. I've given you that before. It's, I've talked about that on this show before. Absolutely. And then there's no reason why you just can't say prayers for everybody, but I'm glad that everything is a little better for you. Let's take some more calls. Let's go to whose turn is it? It's Sherry in Fredericksburg, Texas. Welcome to the show, East of the Rockies. Hi, Sherry. Hi. You there? Nope. I guess not. Let's go to Linda in California. Hello, Linda. Go ahead. Uh, George? Yep. Okay. Thank you for taking my call. I have two questions. I'm the miracle lady that called in, and I got cut off the last time I called. Um, that wasn't a miracle. What happened to you? It, it, I was telling you when I was three years old what happened to me and um, all the trauma that I went through. And there wasn't much time. And it really wasn't a good idea because you had a, an atheist on there, and he was upsetting me. Uh, well, it's hard for me to they, deal with atheists. They don't believe. But, they um, don't believe. That's their thing. Right. But what I want to know is, um, is Pat Boone still alive? Oh, yeah. We were just with Pat uh, about a month and a half ago. He's uh, wonderful. Very, very, like to, his wife, uh, Shirley, has died, but he's still alive. I know. And, and that was Red Foley's daughter that he married, I believe. Um Red Foley was on way back when I was a kid. He was on TV, and and he had daughters that sang, and um, and he married one of those, I believe. Um, but I would like to know if he might be on your program sometime, because, I mean, that goes back to when I was a kid, and I kind of would like to hear something lighthearted instead of really down stuff. 
We well, we try not to do a lot of down stuff at all, but uh, yeah. no plans to put Pat on right now. He was we had a luncheon with him several months ago here in Los Angeles that was well attended, and uh, every once in a while he pops on, but uh, no plans to do a complete show with him at this time. Tom's working on a well-known artist. I can't tell you his name yet. But uh, if he gets a commitment, it will be a home run beyond a home run, to be sure. Next up, let's go to Lori in Chicago. Hello, Lori. Take it away. George, how you doing? I'm doing I good. I saw you very briefly at the Fab 25 event, and I had my sunglasses on, which I don't wear very often. And I didn't get to ask you or Pat. If I look better with my sunglasses off or on, and I wore them only because somebody told me you look like a professional singer with them on. <laughs> and I didn't know if you or Pat were very impressed with that. But anyway, I was saying uh, when Heidi was on, I wish that Pat would have called. I told Tom that I wish he had called. I didn't word it like I will with you. I wish my loved one would have called because he would have been impressed with what Heidi was saying. Sure. And so that's great. And I want you to have another interview with him. And tell me now, because I want to put it permanently in my uh, landline phone, you can keep the AT&T messages forever. What exact date was that interview? Oh, I can't remember that. Oh, I thought you had a record of it. But I'm going to tell you how to do it. Do you have a computer? No, I sure don't. Do you have somebody who can? Somebody who can do what's that? Go to my website, coasttocoastam.com. Yeah. In the search section, there's a little tiny little search button there. Yeah. Type in Pat Boone. And he'll come up, and it'll give you the date of the interview. Oh, okay, because I had forgotten how long it had been from then until the luncheon. Yeah, so that'll that'll give you the full date. And uh, if you were a Coast Insider, you could listen to that interview anytime you want. Oh, but I thought you have to have a computer to be an insider anyway. Yeah, or on your smartphone. You have a phone. Oh, I don't you? even have a smartphone. My landline, you'll never believe this. I don't like this, but I can tell you because anybody could find out anyway, even if they wanted to. My landline cost $110.54, so I gave up cell service. That's a lot. That is a lot to be sure. We're going to come back in a moment and talk about ghosts and seances on Coast to Coast, so don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. Ghost seances, Ouija boards, Mark Twain, a strange grouping, but they make a lot of sense once you listen to writer Varla Ventura. Varla Ventura with us. We talked about banshees. Let's get into some other things that you've done in your career, Varla, and in the book, of course, Paranormal Parlor. And where do people get the book, by the way, Varla? Um, Well, it's officially available. Today is its um, debut day, June 1st, so you can get it anywhere books are sold. It's available on Amazon. IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, your local little bookshop, uh, Powell's, most of those places should have it or should be able to order it for you in a short period of time because it's widely available. 
the movement, the spiritualist movement, was very important for women back in the 1840s to the 1920s. How come? It really was. Uh, you know, during that period of time, women didn't have a lot of options in terms of career paths. Um, a lot of it was based on a conventional marriage, and you were expected to marry, you know, of, of your class or higher. You could become a proprietor if you were alongside your husband. Um, and unless you were widowed, you often, you know, just maintained sort of a, a housewife status. And, you know, the other options, of course, were things like prostitution or becoming, um, you know, the head of a, a, a house of ill repute. Or you had, you know, th- a life of drudgery, like, you know, being um, going into a life of servitude and, and uh, you know, maids or some other kind of um, ladies-in-waiting. So the, the, if you were a woman of sort of the, the lower middle class, especially, you didn't have a lot of options. You couldn't necessarily just explore any kind of career path. And, in fact, if you had a well-to-do husband, you were expected to make him look good. So in order to sort of break free of that, that's part of the reason that the spiritualist movement took off in sort of these upper echelons of um, middle-class society in America and in England, but especially in America, that there were women who had, it was, it was almost a way for them to be able to either be independent and not be married or make a name for themselves in a way that didn't, you know, I mean, this is a time, I mean, to this day, women are buried as Mrs. So, you know, Mrs. Harold Johnson. It's, you don't right. rarely even they're, see they're, her first name. Who are so, they? Right. Yeah, who were they? And so, you know, you had a lot of women who gained incredible notoriety by becoming... So the psychic arts were a way for women to actually be more independent. And in the case of, you know, someone like the Fox sisters, or the, they, were, they were probably the most famous of their time, they made a tremendous amount of money. Now, they happened to be, um, they faked it. <laughs> so they kind of went the other direction. And they, they have this incredible story where it was three sisters, and the oldest sister sort of managed the younger two sisters who were said to be the psychics. And I think actually they had some legitimate experiences in the beginning, but they quickly saw that they could make quite a bit of money and so they they you know i think this is very common in the psychic arts in general and to this day you don't always get the psychic hit but if you're being paid to get the psychic hit you're gonna just make it up so they made up these elaborate stage shows with wrappings and levitating tables and eventually the two younger sisters were drunks and so they would travel around and they were just drinking and drinking and drinking and the oldest sister and one of the cousins who was in on the whole thing eventually ratted these sisters out so they sort of turned on each other and these two incredibly wealthy um fox sisters died paupers and the oldest one who was sort of the manager uh, she did all right, but she had married and, and um, sort of settled down. So it's kind of this, it, that was sort of an extreme story. But you had a lot of women who were um, finding voices for themselves through the psychic arts. You had, uh, there was a, uh, a psychic type named Pearl Curran who mm-hmm. channeled uh, some kind of spirit called Patience Worth. Uh, a long time ago, right? Yes, yes. I th- I think that was in like maybe the nineteen, maybe nineteen sixteen to nineteen eighteen is when she was actually published, and so she was just she was a um, 
a St. Louis housewife yeah, and right. would, you know, attend these sessions and reportedly went into a trance during one particular session where she was with a medium and she didn't claim herself to be a medium. She was attending a session and sort of dropped into trance and started channeling all of these different different entities, but eventually sort of settled on this one named Patience Worth, and Patience Worth was this incredible poet and writer, and in fact became widely published and, and received many accolades as being one of the best poets in America at the time of publication. So she really gained some notoriety for this work, but it was a... It, it was more than just a pen name. This was um, an, uh, a woman saying that it wasn't her at all, but it was, you know, a divine entity that was uh, dictating everything to her. And there was also an incredible story of a novel that was apparently channeled by a Ouija board claiming to be the ghost of Mark Twain writing the novel. And what's interesting is that, that that woman, her name was Emily Grant Hutchings, and she was actually the first person to bring a um, spirit board to the house of Pearl Coran. They were neighbors and friends, and they would attend seances together. And a spirit board is a Ouija board. A Ouija board, right. Because what we know today as the Ouija board, now we've used the term Ouija for um, hundreds of years, but the actual, now when we say the Ouija board, it was trademarked by Parker Brothers. That's true, <laughs> and, and, they, and they did very well with that. <laughs> and they've done very well with it. Um, but yes, so it was also can be referred to as a spirit board, but essentially it's a Ouija board. And she would also bring her to seances and, me, and mediums, and that during one of those, I don't think that Emily Grant Hutchings was there, but she, her, that's when um, Pearl went into the trance and, and channeled Patience Worth. Well, Emily saw this success and actually kind of simultaneously uh, started attending uh, regular sessions with this particular medium. And the story is that the medium had multiple, this is the, all in the, in the introduction to this novel that is said to have been channeled by the ghost of Mark Twain via the Ouija board. So imagine trying to, uh, letter by letter, as you're moving the planchet around the Ouija board and then writing it down. And we're talking like a fifty to 60,000 word novel. Jeez. They painstakingly, allegedly painstakingly channeled it from these series of sessions. And what Emily, Emily's background, actually, she um, had met Mark Twain. So there's some, there's some uh, suspect cast on her story because there's a little bit of evidence in the archives, somewhere like UC Berkeley has the letters, that she had correspondence with Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, and that he had sort of jilted her a little bit, just sort of said, just write your own thing. You know, I can't tell you how to write. And she at the time was a journalist and was sort of traveling around. So anyway, he dies, and then she's at this session, and she um, supposedly the medium says, oh, he just said it's her. And then Emily had to sit down, and as soon as she put her hands down on the board and on the planchet, the thing started going crazy, and it said it was uh, Mark Twain from Beyond on the Grave and that he was going to tell this lost novel, but that she had to be at every single session. It had to be through Emily, and the medium was sort of the conduit. So it was Emily, her husband, 
um, who kind of acted as the scribe. But what I love about the story is that if you read the story, this marvelous introduction, they talk about how they sort of fashioned this Ouija board into something like a typewriter, and they put parents, they put parenthetical marks on there and additional sort of punctuation and uh, ways to sort of words that you know, were, were common, contractions and things like that, so that they could sort of speed the process along. And all the time, you know, there's all these quotes of him saying things like, oh, I'm not the only one here. Everyone here wishes that they had a, a scribe on the other side, as if there's just this lobby full of ghosts wishing to find someone to tell their story to the living. It's really this kind of incredible story within a story. Um, and then it, it takes a turn because she published it. She sold it to a publisher. But uh, Samuel Clemens' daughter and his publisher found out, and they sued the publisher who was putting the book out because she was saying it was you know, by Mark Twain. I mean, she said that on the spine. So they made them Give him credit. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and I, you know, they, they made them take it down, and they destroyed all the copies, and so it never oh, really geez. saw the light of day. And she didn't really get the notoriety she had hoped. In fact, she was somewhat humiliated from it. What's your gut tell you? You think it's possible? Can someone from the other side come back and do something that uh, they love? I, I do think there's, I do think that that's possible. I think that in this case, um, I think she believed what was happening. I think she believed the story, and I think she was an incredible storyteller. And I think that is why it became so convincing. And to me, what the, the best part of the story is the idea of, you know, using this um, board, this spirit board, to create this lavish novel and then sort of having this elaborate backstory I mean, she she closed all the loopholes. It's only today that we can look back and and cast more of a skeptic's light on it and say, oh, well, there's some evidence to say that she had actually read all of his memoirs and knew that he was interested in the psychic arts and that he had attended a few seances and then sort of uh, wrote scathing reviews of them. So there's, you know, I mean, I I feel as if there's an entire book that could be dedicated just to her and what really happened and, you know, speculating on different things. But I think the best part for me is just sort of the setting of this woman finding a way out of what was probably sort of a a boring lifestyle and becoming Hmm. this, you know, published author. And that's what she kind of always, always wanted to be. She sort of invented this persona. Have so, you have you used the Ouija board, Barla, yourself? Oh, oh yes, oh yes. Actually, I was. Why? Just, I was just talking with my sister about this earlier today because I thought, oh, this is probably going to come up, and I wanted to just confer with her. So I have a sister who's very close in age. We were Irish twins, technically. Um, so we're very close in age. We're eleven months and eleven days apart. We spent, you know, a lot of time together. And I asked her today. I said, "Do you remember doing?" Because I have really vivid memories of doing the Ouija board together as as kids. The two of us. Sometimes my mom would do it. Usually my mom would be in the room. She was part of it. Oh yeah, my mom would like ask the questions, oh, and we'd boy. be sitting there. I, I guess in those days people didn't think they were evil. Um. Or did I think they? Some People thought they were evil, just not. You weren't. You weren't scared. You didn't think anything could happen. So I, well, I was pretty young. I mean, I'm not saying I was three or anything, but I was probably, you know, I was under ten. 
Um, oh, the audience is cringing. Imagine children playing on the Ouija board. I know. But, they're going nuts. And, and the thing is, is my sister, she remembers being very scared. She said she remembered it moving, and she wasn't moving it. That's the planchette. And I said I wasn't moving it. And to this day, she's still, like, there's a little bit of her, like, are you sure you weren't moving it? You tricked me. She got scared, and she didn't want to do it anymore. And I said, I don't remember being scared. I remember being fascinated and then mom taking it away. <laughs> so, so, you know, everybody has their own you mean You mean your mother, who was a part of it, got scared and took it away? At a certain point. Something happened. Uh, yes, yes. At a certain point, we started talking with the ghost of a little girl. Um, and there was an old pioneer grave, a lone grave in the woods. I mean, it's just like the most freaky setting you could imagine. But there's a lone grave in the woods that our neighbor had stumbled upon. And she kind of told, told us about it. We had all kind of hiked through the woods, and we had seen this lone grave, and it was of a little girl. And I remember it specifically because I was around the age that this little girl was when she had died. She was like seven years old. And so we started seeing if we could I mean, we were kind of actually looking for her to see if we could find anything out about her. Um, and then I think what happened is we actually started getting correspondence. And I don't know exactly if it was a moment or just an overall feeling, but there was this uh, particular time where, I don't know, we, we were maybe asking the questions, and my mom was in the room, and we were kind of playing with it, and it was moving pretty rapidly which anyone who's done the Ouija will find that there's sort of this kinetic energy that starts, so you it moves slowly, and then it can actually start moving really fast. Mm-hmm. Then, then it picks up the emotion of people or something. Yes, yes, and so I'm not entirely convinced that it actually was an entity talking to us, that, but that it wasn't something in our mind, sort of like more of a mind control kind of thing, where it was like, well, but we were so young, it was a little bit more subconscious. In any case, we weren't physically pushing it, and my mom walked into the room at a certain point, and she just picked the board up, folded it in half, tucked it under her arm, and, and left. And later she said Whoa. to us, that she felt that there was something trying to talk to us, but she was not, she realized at that moment, she didn't think we would actually make contact with anything. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean LaDesour, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burrows, Tim Banal, George Knapp, Ian Punnett, and Connie Willis. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.